Ian, I was uh, I was thinking of cold opens for this movie. Uh huh. There isn't one. There's just not. There's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no cold <laughs> opens to be had. I feel like having our audience watch this movie was the cold open, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> it really this being was our cold movie. <laughs> <laughs> I felt almost cruel. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, it's almost like we didn't want people to come back for season two. Yeah, exactly. We were kind of like saying, like, maybe they won't miss us if we release this. Today we have a cinema classic for you. The return of the killer tomatoes. Sounds like a real winner, doesn't it? Well, hello folks. We are Paths of Fear, the place where you can go to watch amazing horror movies and have them discussed by your two favorite people and give your own input. I'm Marshall. And I'm Ian. And today we were watching Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Go into it, Ian. Uh, welcome to season two. We have returned. Naturally, uh, for our first movie, we had to watch a movie that celebrates uh, a return of something. Um, cough, cough. This was Marshall's idea. It wasn't mine. Uh, it was all Marshall, no, even though true. I'm the one who put up the movie, but it's fine. <laughs> and uh, what better way to celebrate our return than Killer Tomatoes? So yeah, and, uh, this movie came out in 1988. It was directed by John DeBello and written by John DeBello, Costa Dillon, and Stephen Peace. How can a movie written by three people uh, be bad? You know, it can't be. Oh, and uh, also it somehow stars George Clooney. So uh, <laughs> ah. for like one of his first roles, apparently. Good old George. And then uh, if you haven't watched Passive Fear before, first of all, welcome uh, to season two. I can't believe you skipped the whole first season. Uh, but, <laughs> but the way that we start off our episodes is with a little movie teaser that gives you a spoiler-free idea of the movie if we haven't spoiled it already. So you can decide if you want to watch it or not. Uh, I'll then give a full movie summary to catch everyone up after our initial thoughts and ratings of the film. And uh, without further ado, here's my teaser. It's been 10 years since the Great Tomato War, and 10 years since now-retired war hero Wilbur Finletter led the final charge to squash what remained of the killer tomato forces. With his tomato paste behind him, Finletter, with the help from his nephew Chad, opened a tomatoless pizzeria in a small town. But unbeknownst to them, a mad scientist, the one responsible for the Great Tomato War, was on verge of a terrifying development. Now, in this small, unnamed, and conventional-looking town, only one thing is certain. No one is safe but the return of the killer tomatoes. Fantastic. Yeah, well, what do you think? Uh, first first teaser oh. for the season? <laughs> it, was, it was a good teaser. I felt teased. Um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that you, you made it like way too cool of a voice for the movie. It, <laughs> and, it definitely should have been like a SpongeBob voice behind the teeth. <laughs> uh, well, overall, Ian, I will say I had hope for this movie. 
Because there are some movies that do that, like, goofy really well. Uh, and that, like, absurdity well. Uh, this movie did for the first maybe, like, 30-ish minutes, I would say. Um, but then it just kept drawing out. And it kept getting in its own way. So, like, if we had... If I... This would be better as, like, maybe a 30 or 40 minute special than it is as a full-blown movie on its own. Yeah. That would be totally... I would be good with that. That would be a movie I would enjoy. I'd recommend. Um, however, it just got too drawn out. They kept falling back on the same jokes too much. It didn't feel like a loop around of the same joke. It just fell back onto the same joke again and again and again. So... My personal rating for this movie at the end of the day, Ian, is a 4.5. A 4.5. Which all right, all right. is very subject to change as we see better movies. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to start off with a strong 4.5. I would like to point out that uh, if, if, we're, if like we're comparing to season one ratings, uh, <laughs> you still like the movie better than Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, I did. I did get more enjoyment <laughs> out of this than Chainsaw Massacre. I will. There you go. 100 percent admit to that. All right. Well, uh, I guess to give my uh, like overall feelings of the movie, um, like I, I totally agree, by the way, like it was drawn out. It got in its own way. Um, and I also think like simply being Un and like intentionally bad or a parody does not protect this movie from being just unenjoyable yeah uh like i don't have any problem with the performances or the special effects or like the fourth wall jokes um and i definitely i don't have a problem with the killer tomatoes like it's silly but it it's fine like you can work with it but the movie completely lacks any direction and purpose for its paradization i don't know what it's trying to parody or why and instead just relies completely on corny jokes uh, and general ridiculousness, as well as just the objectification of women uh, to make it entertaining. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I was intended to poke fun at other than it's lack of budget and absurd tomato antagonists, um, which don't even need to be pointed out to, to be ridiculous or funny. Um, so other than a few funny jokes that I did laugh at, I, I don't see any redeeming qualities for this movie. And it's so far from being anything uh, that I would enjoy that aside from scrapping the entire movie and starting over, I see no way fixing it. And because of that specifically, I have to give the movie a one. Oh, is that your first one ever, Ian? I think it might be. <laughs> hot damn, hot damn. Uh, I, I mean, if there's a movie that's worthy of one, it's got to be around here, you know? I think really what drove it home is just there were times when the movie just made me uncomfortable. It wasn't just unenjoyable. It was like anti-enjoyable. Now, it did get me to laugh a few times. Maybe just for that, I could raise it a point, but I've decided not to. <laughs> and that's, that's your decision to make. Um, well, I'll tell you, Ian, our audience, we had a high of eight. Eight was the highest for this movie. <laughs> Uh, our lowest was a one. You, someone's right there with you. But our average score for this movie from our audience was a 4.25. Oh, wow. Right around your score. Yeah, it was actually. I was kind of, I was kind of shocked when I saw that. Um, there you go. So in general, on the bad side, below a five, uh, whether or not it's fantastic or hated, people are disagreeing on. So we'll see. Yep. Uh, just wait till I tell you how, how many people the movie scared, because that's going to be a fun show. We'll, <laughs> we'll get to yeah. that at the end. <laughs> Can't wait. Uh, well, Ian, do you want to hop into our summary, and we'll take it from there, get, do a deep dive into the movie? 
Yep, and I would like to point out that for this summary, I had to rent this movie twice uh, because I wasn't <laughs> able to finish in time in the first like forty-eight hour period. So, yep, I had to give them money twice. Oh no, <laughs> that's the worst case. Anyways, <laughs> but uh, here it is: Professor Mortimer Gangring, an older, disheveled man in a loose-fitting lab coat, stands beside a young woman, Tara, as he drops a tomato into a container of discolored and bubbling liquid. After fetching it back out of the mysterious mixture, he stands the tomato on top of a tube inside a closed glass chamber. After instructing Tara to put on a pair of earplugs, he inserts a quarter into the nearby jukebox and plays rock music. The tomato transforms into a comically beefed-out commando. After giving a solid of fist pump, the professor changes the track to a classical symphony, reverting the commando back into a tomato. Success! <laughs> This time, we shall not fail! <laughs> A credit sequence follows, recanting humanity's victory over the killer tomatoes in the previous film, including the final charge led by war hero Wilbur Finletter. Afterwards, Finletter's nephew Chad carries a pizza box from their family-owned tomato-less pizzeria and straps it to the back of his moped. He delivers the pizza to the manor of Professor Gangrene, where Tara opens the front door to receive it. Hi, Tara. I brought your pizza. Before leaving, Chad makes his best attempt at inquisitive small talk. You know, well, um... So, so I, I guess then you are doing research too? Are you his daughter? Or what? I'm his lover. I also cook and clean. Chad's disappointment is interrupted by the grunts of nearby commandos at work. They are gardeners and carpenters. They are not tomato men. Okay. Back at the pizzeria, Chad's roommate, fellow pizza man, and George Clooney lookalike Matt, and the restaurant's patrons, want to change the TV channel from news of illegal tomato activity to the town's favorite sport, full-contact America's Cup yacht racing. This angers Finletter, who provides a summary of the first movie, or rather retells the events of the Great Tomato War to a nonchalant Matt. You see, the key was music. Music made them grow, and only music could make them shrink. But not just any music. Oh no, one song in particular. Puberty love. Back at Professor Gangrene's manor, the scientist reflects on the weakness of his first tomato army. It was a fluke. One in a million shot. Who would have thought that one horrible song would shrink those giant tomatoes that I worked so hard to create? This time, music will be our victory. <laughs> Not our defeat. Later, we're introduced to the professor's servant, Igor, who appears more fit to be a TV anchor than a supervillain's minion. It is my pleasure to respond to your immediate needs, and I'd just like to say Listen that I- Listen to me, pretty boy. I know you're hanging around just until something opens up in the TV news field, but it just does not look right for a noted misanthrope of my stature to have a servant who looks like you. After berating Igor, Gangring continues his work in the lab where he discovers a tomato had grown unnaturally hairy while dunked in the tomato preparation liquid. The professor hands the malformed tomato to Igor to be disposed of, 
However, Tara follows Igor and rescues the hairy tomato from the garbage. She also decides to give it an appropriate name. Don't worry, little brother. I'll protect you. I don't mind it's your fuzzy tomato. Fuzzy tomato. FT. That will be your name. FT. Tara stashes FT into a bag and runs from the professor's manor in the middle of the rainy night. She heads to Finletter's Pizzeria, where she interrupts Chad's midnight pizza-making session. It's just fooling. Uh, you surprised me. Do you want to make love? Stunned by Tara's question, Chad takes a minute. He then asks if Tara hit her head or is otherwise not all there at the moment. Tara assures him that she's perfectly fine, she then tells Chad he should take her home with him. Though still apprehensive, Chad agrees. The following morning, Matt comes home and unintentionally meets Tara as she's coming out of the shower. He runs to Chad's room to confront him, waking him up to the fact that last night actually happened. Tara offers to make them both breakfast, which the guys happily accept. As she's making it, she talks with her new little brother, F.T. Matt congratulates Chad on his catch of a woman, Though Chad's still not convinced Tara's all there, especially after he finds an open bag of fertilizer sitting outside a messy shower. That same morning, Professor Gangrene realizes Tara is missing and sends Igor to find her. Is this from a reliable source? Of course it's from a reliable source, you blonde-headed boob! Now go get the truck! You mean the KIGR newsman? I don't care what you call it. Go! Igor heads out in what appears to be a garbage truck with a satellite dish strapped to the top. Before searching for Tar, he stops at a prison to talk to the former president's press secretary, Jim Richardson, the villain from the first film. What I mean is, we'll be here Thursday night as planned. Thursday? Thursday. Perfect. <laughs> They'll never stop us this time. <laughs> Elsewhere, Tara leads Chad to a store where she goes to buy plant food. In the back of the store, Chad witnesses the owner buying tomatoes off a smuggler. He wants to go to the police, but Tara thinks he's overreacting. What do you really know about tomatoes anyways, huh? I mean, how would you feel if you'd been raised to be eaten? Wouldn't you rebel at the first opportunity? What are you talking about? Honey, you can't possibly be defending those monsters. They, they, they nearly destroyed my uncle and everything else in this country. No way I'm going to defend tomatoes. Oh, cheap talk from a carnivore. That evening, the couple heads to their date at a local fancy restaurant, and Chad apologizes for how he spoke earlier. Tara doubles down on what she had said. Think about what I said, Chad. Don't let someone else tell you what to fear. Or what to feel. Hey, look. There's not a person in here who would have acted any differently. Tomatoes are evil. A good tomato is a squash tomato, period. For a moment, Tara's eyes glow red with anger, and she spills Chad's glass of water on him. He storms off to the bathroom to clean himself up. After he leaves, and to Tara's horror, a violinist approaches the table and begins playing a classical piece. Tara tries to plug her ears, but it is too late, and she turns back into a tomato. A nearby patron sees Tara's tomato form sitting atop the table and screams. Panic ensues, and everyone runs out of the restaurant.
As the restaurant empties, a nearby clock plays a short chime on the hour, and Tara turns back into her human form. Chad returns to find the restaurant deserted. What's going on? Uh, fire drill? Oh. Well, come on, let's go. The following morning, Matt talks to Chad about Tara, wondering about her hatred of music and love for agricultural reports. He also inquires about their love life. Last night, she brought in a lawn chair, six milk bottles, a tuning fork, and... FT! Their talk is interrupted when FT falls from the apartment window, causing Tara to chase after him. FT goes on a little adventure, bouncing off vehicle bumpers, thrown from place to place, until he eventually lands outside a small boutique. Once recognized as a tomato, FT is surrounded by people who start trying to squash him. Tar dives into the crowd and rescues FT and sprints away with Chad and Matt in tow. After escaping the mob, Chad confronts Tara. Wait a minute, are you nuts? That's a tomato! It's not a tomato, it's just a fuzzy little dog! Dog? That's no dog. What dog has red fur and only two legs? Well, what tomato has red fur and any legs at all? Cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. Save the film, strike the bras, kill the babies. Their argument is interrupted by the production team of the movie, as the director makes the announcement that the film is out of money and cannot continue. My friends, I'm sorry, but it uh, looks like we are out of money for this picture. However, Matt convinces them to move forward, using product placement to fund the remaining scenes. Back at the pizzeria, Chad talks to Matt about Tara, as a box of Kellogg's cornflakes sits prominently in frame. Listen, there's something she isn't telling me about gangrene and what happened up there. I've got to find out what's going on. They're interrupted when Sam Smith, an old war buddy of Finlitter, walks into the pizzeria disguised as Umar Gaddafi. Good afternoon, sir. Have you any falafel? My God! It's Omar Gaddafi! This prompts Finlander to attack him, initiating a chaotic scene where cowboys, ninjas, martial artists, and a bike gang enter the restaurant and begin fighting while one patron brushes his teeth with Crest's whitening toothpaste. Chad, annoyed with the direction the movie has taken, orders everyone out of the restaurant and tells his uncle that the man he's attacking is his friend, not the Libyan revolutionary. With that cleared up, Sam tells Finlander he now works for the FBI, or Federal Vegetable Investigations, and that they've gotten reports of tomato activity in the area. He asks Chad and Matt if they know anything about this. No, I've never seen a tomato in my life. Officer, <laughs> tomatoes are illegal. We wouldn't know anything about anything illegal, right, Chad? Shut up, Matt. Through the front of the restaurant, Chad notices the strange-looking garbage truck, which he had seen following them earlier. As it heads off, Chad decides to get into his car and follow it. Eventually, the truck pulls up to a hazardous materials dump. There, Chad witnesses Igor stepping out, proceeding to fill a container from a large puddle of bubbling waste liquid. Igor then heads back to the manor with Chad still on his tail. While peering through a crack in the wall, Chad sees Igor bring the liquid into the laboratory, where the professor follows the same process as in the beginning of the movie to make another tomato commando. Horrified, Chad runs home to tell Matt, but decides that Tara should hear this too. However, Upon finding her, his terror only increases. Tara has been caught eating plant food with FT. The three of them scream for some time. Until eventually, Tara runs out of the apartment with FT in her arms. 
As she runs down the sidewalk, she's suddenly ambushed by Igor, who picks her up and tosses her into the cab of the garbage truck. In the chaos, F.T. slips from her arms. Meanwhile, Chad slouches down next to Matt, exasperated. The girl of my dreams is a vegetable! Buddy, come on, pizza man, huh? Tomatoes are their little red round things. You know, there's a real woman! Don't you realize what I've been trying to tell you? What I saw at Gangrene's lab? I discovered it. <laughs> the key to the whole thing, don't you see? The secret is music! Nonetheless, Chad still cares for Tar and realizes she's in danger, for if she were to hear music, she could be turned into a tomato. Matt and Chad take to the town to look for Tar. Worrying that she could be a tomato already, they head to the store where Chad and Tar had witnessed tomato smuggling activity. While in the back, looking through illicit tomatoes, they overhear the owner talking with the smuggler again. 50 bucks? That's too much! And this one is deformed! It's a hairy! F.T. Tara. Knowing that Tara was with F.T., Chad is sure that the second tomato the smuggler has must be her, so he grabs them both and flees the store. He then convinces Matt to come with him to the professor's lab in order to change Tara back into a human being, but not before a quick promotion. We will each take a Honda Quad Runner from Honda of San Diego. They have excellent acceleration and superb rideability. After sneaking into the manor, they head down to the basement where the laboratory is located. With no one there, Chad works with Matt to follow the tomato human making process that he observed earlier. Put her in that container of green liquid. Okay. Hurry up. Oh, and Matt, very careful when you're putting her in. That's toxic waste. Toxic waste. You're soaking in it. After setting the tomato atop the tube within the glass chamber, Chad starts putting on music, but nothing he plays turns the tomato back into Tara. Something is very wrong. Hey, Pope. They're then interrupted by the professor and Igor. With Igor holding the guys at gunpoint, Professor Gangreen takes the tomato from the class chamber. I don't know what plans you had for this tomato, but... And squashes it in front of them. They're over. <laughs> Chad and Matt are then imprisoned in another room. While at first incredibly distraught, Chad's mood quickly changes when Tara steps out from around the corner. Chad? Tara? I thought you never wanted to see me again. I thought you were ketchup. I'm so sorry I deceived you. I'm the one who's sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> Excuse me. Their luck continues to improve when they hear FT squeaking outside the door. They decide to send FT off to get help. You have to tell Uncle Wilbur where we are. He can get us out of here. No, that's never going to work. He's never going to be able to understand him. Well, we could write a note. Swell, where are we gonna get paper to write a note? Just use a page from my script. Perfect! Despite lacking any limbs aside from a couple stubby leafy feet, FT drives to the pizzeria on one of the 4x4s and flings himself inside, startling Finletter who quickly ties FT up before reading the letter attached to him. I don't know how you got this, but it's Chad's handwriting all right. 
Upon receiving Chad's letter, Finlander calls in reinforcements, his close war friends, Sam Smith and some guy who only ever wears a wetsuit and full scuba diving equipment. Finlander puts on his old military uniform from the first movie, which includes a deployed parachute hanging from the back, a saber in the belt, as well as an unfortunate flag underneath the vest. The diver, as well as Sam Smith, dressed in some cowboy getup, show up at the pizzeria, and the three come up with a plan. This is our objective. Gangrene's place. He won't slip through some legal loophole this time. We're behind you all the way, Major! As the team heads out, Professor Gangrene explains his evil plan to Chad and Matt, having trapped them inside the laboratory's glass enclosure. My tomatoes can be made to resemble anyone. The chief of police, a congressman, the president himself. My scientific genius and Jim Richardson's political savvy, we will not fail again. The professor then presses a button to start a countdown before leaving with Igor and restrained Tara to break Jim Richardson out of prison. In just 10 minutes, you'll be a tomato. <laughs> Soon after, Finlater and company arrive at the manor. While FT distracts the commando guards, they make their way inside. After splitting up to cover more ground, Finlater is the first to find Chad and Matt, with only 20 seconds left on the timer. After regrouping with the others, the team heads to the prison to save Tar from the professor and his goons. Once inside, they come face to face with his platoon of tomato commandos. No! Before the shooting begins, FT jumps at the nearest switch, turning out the lights. After the lights are turned back on, it's revealed that the tomato commandos have been defeated, with only their tomato guts left behind. The professor and Igor still holding Tara run off. Once the team catches up with Professor Gangreen, he has Tara locked in a gas chamber, threatening to pull the lever to activate it. Igor also pulls out a live hand grenade, but he's tackled by Sam Smith, causing him to drop it. As everyone dives for cover, FT throws himself on top of the grenade. <laughs> while Professor Gangrene takes the chance to pull the gas chamber lever. <laughs> Tara falls to the ground, and Chad is unable to open the locked door. However, as the gas dissipates, to Chad's surprise, Tara is still alive. Tara. At a last-ditch effort, Professor Gangrene pulls out his tape recorder to play classical music, hoping to turn Tara back into a tomato. But it doesn't work. You're supposed to be a tomato. What happened? Sounds! I should have known it. Once you've been gassed, you'll never be a real tomato again. Guards show up and take Professor Gangrene and Igor away, and the team celebrates their victory. FBI! Take these men away! No prison on earth can hold me, Tara! Tomorrow is another day! Tara also finds F.T. alive under some rubble. F.T.'s all right. F.T.'s alive! All right, all right. The movie ends at a celebration where Finlater and his crew are once again heralded as tomato war heroes, but not before one last promotion. Daddy, Daddy, bring me F.T. Please, Daddy. Why, of 
course, dear, who wouldn't want one of these cute little dolls? They're the perfect gift for any boy or girl, and they're on sale in the lobby of this theater. If not, ask at your favorite toy or department store. Don't let your child be left out. Christmas isn't very far away. I love you, Damn, thanks for that summary. <laughs> I feel like I understand the movie on a deeper level now. Yep. <laughs> I I mean honestly, I think if you just hear the summary, it might not seem so bad. Um <laughs> Yeah. It's 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 bad. I feel like the summary needs to be riddled with like, but then they fall back on this joke again. Like they do this thing yeah, again. And I need to like speak in like, commentary. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be all the commentary of like, but actually this part was bad because blank. Yep. Well Ian. I will say that I had high hopes for this movie in the beginning when it was, they were kind of falling back on absurdity and they were using that just to show how ridiculous their whole movie setup is going to be. Um, It seemed like that silly, goofy kind of enjoyable at first. And I could appreciate that until, and I, I, maybe the joke worked once, but they started breaking the fourth wall a whole lot, hopping in on like, what budget do we have? We need product placement and all that. And it just got to be too much. Uh, I feel like you either go silly, goofy with it, silly, absurd, or you go with like kind of clever. Oh, look, we're and we're judging our own movie within the movie. Right. You can't really do both all too well. I feel like they are conflicting kind of humors. And so to have the two right there next to each other did not do the movie any favors, I feel like. Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree. I think this movie tried to do a lot of ridiculous things for no reason. They start off the movie with like this, we're in this like theater and we're being introduced to this crappy movie. It gets like a $1 theater. And then they kind of go with that for like a little bit. And like they even have like a like a call thing where the audience can call in. And they even have like someone call in like for the first part of the movie and say like, oh, this is just old footage from the uh, previous movie. Did they do this to save money? And so they're almost they they seem to like prop it up um, and prepare us to like have this almost, you know, mystery theater uh, 2000 or whatever um, commentary that's going to be throughout the movie, like occasionally, which I, I kind of enjoy. Like I enjoy that idea. Um, I think that could be enjoyable. And they even pull it in at the end, too, where it really affects the movie, and that's fine. But then they also start doing this thing with, in the movie itself, budget constraints. And then the producer comes in, they're like, how about product placement, whatever. So it just, it can't decide what absurdity to focus on. It's it's not consistent in its ridiculousness and absurdity. It keeps jumping from different types, and it makes it confusing <laughs> and just weird. I just needed one or the other. It can't really be both. What I will give this movie credit for is that in the beginning, they set up some really great absurd things. I loved seeing the tomato turn into this giant buff Jack dude. And I was like, <laughs> so that's a killer tomato. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that was fantastic. I was all for it. Um, and then, then they had all these weird sexual parts of it, though, like that very much objectified women that I... Uh, like maybe you can slide with like a joke or two of like, hey, these guys are stupid and just think about women. But it was constant, constant throughout the movie. And it really just granted it was an 80s movie, but that isn't too much of an excuse for just how much they played on that. Like. We want to look at sexy women throughout the movie, and I was like, well, this is a, a comedy, arguably a horror comedy, but hard argument for sure. And it was 
just too much. And I was like, you guys need to stop. That's like, you were good at absurdist. Don't take it this weird sexual route. I got to say, like, where it starts with me on that, uh, we, have, we of course, we have Tara, right, who is the lover, the tomato lover of the professor that he created to be his lover. And and we know that that's fucked up. The movie also knows that that's fucked up. So that's it's kind of like, you know, that's expected to be fucked up. But then, like, we get to this weird place because she runs away from the professor and then she, she comes to uh, our main guy, Chad, and she asks him to have sex. And at first, it's almost okay because he's basically saying no. But then I realized, wait a second. He's not saying no because he's a good guy and he's concerned. He's saying no because it's the joke of like, oh, this sexy, beautiful woman couldn't possibly want me because I'm a, you know, a nerd or whatever. That's where it completely loses me there. Like, it could have been okay had they correctly criticized the kind of situation that she was in, but they didn't. They kind of played into it and was like, wow, isn't this fun? She's going to have sex with this guy because... Uh, I don't know. She's a tomato woman. Yeah, I like so I'll give an example of what I thought was a good use of that kind of like weird sexual humor. Um, there was that whole they had a whole song about it. There was that I, I'm trying to remember how the song goes, but it's like big breasted woman topless on the beach or something. And I was like, that works because you're laughing at the industry for like having that essentially. And you're pointing it out, like putting it in the spotlight of like, that's just stupid and weird, but it's like a thing we see. Um, that that works with me because it's pointing out a flaw rather than being flawed. Right. But overall, they're like weird sexual jokes just didn't land too well. Yeah. And because they were coming from the wrong place, they, they were assuming that our audience would find objectification to be funny when, you know, we we just don't. Yeah, it's it's cheap humor. And I I give our audience the credit of being above that for the most part. Exactly. I guess another instance where I could see, again, them taking the wrong term, they could have taken the right one, is when uh, our George Clooney character, Matt, I think is his name, is doing this scam where he's getting women to give him uh, like their phone numbers and stuff so that he because he can set them up on a date with the famous person. And Chad seems to think that this is fucked up, right? He's like, hey, why are you doing this? And at first it's like, oh, good. Like, you know, he's pointing out that, you know, Matt's... Because you can have a character who's a creep, and that's fine, as long as you treat them as such. But instead, Chad takes that and he's like, oh, that's fucked up because you don't think that I can get a girl by myself, you know? And it's like, that's not the fucked up part. Um, so it's just, again and again, the way that they handle it, it just comes off the wrong way. No, I entirely agree that there were all these things where it just didn't quite work almost because they didn't have someone to point out that's the wrong way of thinking. That's like a that's just the wrong path to take with this joke. And had, yeah, if had they had something like that, that would have been perfect. You're totally right. Um, and the fact that they portray Matt Stevens, George Clooney's character as like, I don't know, the cool uh, suave guy or whatever makes it just that much worse. Yes. Beyond the misogyny of the movie, I will say that, in general, the earlier parts of the movie, like I said, they were alright. Um, definitely got some laughs out of me, and I thought, like, wow, what a silly, goofy premise. Towards the end of the movie, jokes just weren't landing like they did in the beginning of the movie. Not just, I felt like almost the writers got a little lazy with it towards the end. 
Or they really just started thinking of just anything they could. Like, for example, the scuba guy. I, I don't know why he was there, why that whole team was there. But I've decided not to question that. I cannot criticize this movie for its storytelling because that's not what it's trying to do entirely well. <laughs> but the scuba guy, like his whole thing of like, oh, I have to hold up a sign instead of actually say words. That that was just like uh, neat. It's not I, that didn't get a laugh. It's just like a joke that doesn't land. I feel like there's so many examples of just movies that weren't landing towards the end or jokes that weren't landing towards the end of the movie that the beginning of the movie set up for you to expect really nice landing jokes. And they just stopped. And that was it. I, I can I can like say here there were some clever things in there. And and while it might be cheap, I did get a good laugh out of Finletter's fucking parachute that he kept tripping on and like almost got everyone killed. The the parachute one I liked except like the last I don't there's like four seconds there where it just goes a little too long. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but like if they if they cut it down by just that little bit of time, it would have been good. It would have been just, just golden. Just a little bit. Yeah, they did a really great job of like setting up a funny background almost. And then when they were at, and when it felt like our characters are actually trying to joke, it it didn't land for the most part. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think that the beginning probably landed so well was because that's all they're doing is they're making setup. They're giving background that is absurd. And it's funny because of that. What was it? The pizzeria all those like different pizza toppings they had like cranberry sauce and oranges or whatever <laughs> yep. that i was like that's amusing but then also just because i get grossed out too easily by food i was just like dear lord this is a dystopian movie <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> <laughs> my gosh it was all right for a moment and then i was like no that's too much stop thinking of these terrible combos <laughs> I will say that FT surviving that grenade blast that uh that just broke my immersion. It just didn't work. That's there's true. there's no FT way FT could have taken that. Yeah, yeah. I would have made the movie a whole lot more meaningful. You know, would have <laughs> would have gotten some tears. I mean, it uh, FT was my favorite character. That's fair. Yeah, uh, probably because it didn't talk, <laughs> but <laughs> still. Yeah the the movie tried to be something and tried to be another thing and they kept trying to be another thing and it just didn't line up in the end. Whenever I think about talking about it, the, the things that I focus on are the random problematic things. And I know, I know we, we've already talked at length about the misogyny. I'm sure we could talk way more on it too, you know. Uh, but there were also like some other problematic parts that we saw like where, like really random ones that that like they don't even have the excuse of just trying to make a cheap joke there's just like at one point igor at the response of the professor uh when he gives him a command does a nazi salute which i just i do not understand the place of that in the movie and then on finlander's uniform um he just he has a confederate flag on it uh like a, a confederate flag patch and just i like i know these are they're like small things in terms of the time committed to them, but they are there. And it's just, it's very strange to me. No, I felt like, why add those in the first place? I, I just, I don't understand the purpose of them. Like, Emily and I were talking about when the, when the Nazi salute first happens. Like, the thing is with the Nazi salute, at least it's like, well, he's working for a supervillain. So maybe they're trying to draw some parallels there for some reason. 
But then the Confederate flag patch is like on our main hero guy. And it's not like there's any attention brought to it that's critical. So what's the message there? You know, you can't just say, oh, well, it's parody or something. Uh, of course, Finler's, Finletter is an idiot, but so is everyone else in this movie. So I don't know. It's just weird decisions to me. Yeah, the Confederate flag's a weird one because um, this is a old show that I don't know if anyone's going to really know. The Dukes of Hazard. It had like the main car, like if every episode for whatever reason, the two brothers driving around in their car that had a big Confederate flag on top of it. They'd have to like go over a bridge for whatever reason or not, because that was the only way to get out of trouble in their car. Uh, I'd have to go back and watch it, but there's probably like the occasional problematic thing. It's like a late '70s show, um, right? But I think in general it was it was kind of like a it would be more of a I don't know like a cornerstone in media. Or at least in like those early kind of like action adventure shows, had it not had a big old Confederate flag put over it, because that just like that tainted it in some way, and it felt like there was almost a lesson to be learned there that I think they didn't quite get to learn a decade later. I think they learned that much later, but it just doesn't have a place being anywhere. We don't need that. Uh, there's no point. It doesn't speak to anything. If you want, you know, you can have a character that we're supposed to not like. Uh, who acts in certain ways, you know, where it, it where it makes sense for them to uh, like having a Confederate flag on them. But you don't make one of the characters that's supposed to be like this, uh, who's the war hero and like uh, generally liked. It it just it doesn't make any sense to me. No, it's I one hundred percent agree. It was just problematic for problematic sake. I will say I know I said I wasn't going to comment too much on the story here, but I do have to make one comment because that's my that's my thing. <laughs> they kept using the fourth wall breaks like it was excusable with like the writing on the script for ft because that's like a tiny little thing but they kept using fourth wall breaks to kind of like move the movie forward in some weird way that just didn't quite work because if you can just turn to a fourth wall break to get to the next part of the movie to like get to the next story beat or whatever then that doesn't you didn't write a cohesive narrative if you have to fall back on that and despite it being this silly, goofy movie, I still think a movie needs a cohesive narrative. That's yeah. just that's just move. It's just movie making. That's just storytelling. So yeah, that that's all I'll say on story. I can say plenty of things, but that I don't want to go too in depth on that because I don't think that that's what this movie was trying to do was be an engaging story. And I think that's fair, but yeah, it's. If if your audience can't follow the story enough to really connect with the movie at all, even if it's an absurdist way, uh, yeah, like I, I feel like good absurdist comedy, it pulls the rug out from under you. You know, you think it's going one way, it goes the other way. In this movie, you don't think it's going anyway, and you don't know where it's going, but it's not pulling out the rug from underneath you because it's not setting anything up. And because of that, like some of the inconsistencies it has, you can't chalk up to to be purposeful. Like we like we have this whole storyline where the I guess the villain's breaking the old villain out of jail for some reason. And then like he he ends up throwing Tara into a gas chamber, which is presumably supposed to kill her. But then instead of killing her, it keeps her like she comes out and she's fine. And then he tries to turn her back into a tomato with music but then he can't 
And then it's like, oh, well, she, the gas made her permanently human, which he knew. And so it's just like this whole thing of like, okay, <laughs> just this is unexpected in the wrong way. You know, it's not a twist. It's not a pull the rug out from under you. It's just bad storytelling. Yeah, I would say the issue is that, yes, it should pull the rug out from under you. They never, we were never standing on a rug. They didn't give us that. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the issue there. Um, I will say world building wise, I was so annoyed that there was just like a back room with a bunch of tomatoes at the store. Because like, apparently they're like outlawed or banned or whatever. And then they just have a back room of tomatoes for no reason that haven't gone bad. It's not like they've been there. I was just like, this is a terrible dystopian world that they're living in. <laughs> None of it makes sense. That's not what the movie was going for. So I can't blame it too hard, but still. Amelia pointed out how it's weird that uh, that Chad drives uh, like a Corvette and takes Tar out to like the super fancy restaurant. And he's like a pizza delivery guy. That is kind of odd. I never even thought about that. I will say, I do like that one part at the fancy restaurant where Igor asks for his garbage truck and they bring him the wrong garbage truck. And I was just like, <laughs> I was... <laughs> it, it see, here's the thing is like those kind of jokes landed. And then right after it, when it seems like they're trying too hard, when he like turns to people on the street and is like, is, has this movie had a chase scene yet? And then he just drives his garbage truck into the wall. Like you have the, like that difference there of kind of what the movie could have been where it's like this, you know, I mean, it's still not great, but it's it's still like kind of like it's something that you were not expected. You do have the rug pulled out from under you because that's not where you expected like the surprise to come. That's not where you expected the joke to be. Whereas when he says, does this movie have a chase scene yet? They're telling you what the joke is before they finish it. And so I like I think that's a perfect like example, like a microcosm of the bad parts in the movie versus the good parts. Yeah, and it. I think the main thing is that it has a precursor, like the garbage truck. Him get them bringing the wrong garbage truck. It was because it was funny that he had a garbage truck. Sure, little giggle, but then the fact that they had two is just like, oh my god, that's yes, like that's so silly, that's so great. But so yeah, I would say that you're totally right. That is a perfect microcosm of just what the movie could have been and then what it was. Now, mind you, what it could have been is still not very good. It, it's not amazing, but it's a lot better than what we got. <laughs> yeah. It might have been like a 5.5. Yeah. How crazy. For, for me, like a 3, <laughs> maybe a 4. So yeah, that's uh, that's all the takes I have on the movie. And it's not an incredibly complex movie for us to dive into, I feel like. Do you have anything else you want to get into before we uh, move on to surveys? Yeah. If I could if I could summarize, it's just... when it, When it comes to the actual movie itself, like the storytelling, the jokes, you know, the ridiculousness... When they're not trying so hard, you get a few chuckles. When they try too hard and they they just force a bunch of stuff in there that doesn't make any sense, it gets less funny. And then that on top of the weird problematic parts of the movie that are completely unnecessary, like it just leads to a extremely, an exceptionally lackluster movie experience. Yeah, no, I'd say it's a good, good way to bring it all together in the end. Um, are we good to go to surveys? I don't want to beat a dead horse. I don't want to just keep calling. Yeah, no, let's, let's, let's just, let's do it. Let, let, <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, let's let our audience uh, tear this movie apart for us so we oh. can uh, just jump in there. Well, Ian, let's uh, let's hop into how much this movie scared them. And uh, 
I'm proud to say this is our first unanimous vote from our audience on a movie. Oh. Yeah, everyone unanimous. everyone gave it a one. No, they didn't scare anyone, <laughs> which understandably so. <laughs> Man. <laughs> it's you know it's got to be bad when like the kind of people who would put like a higher number to be funny don't even do it because it's so <laughs> like and to be fair, it's not. It's like a weird parody dystopian horror. Like I don't know yeah. what I what movie I would say it's parodying, but I definitely get the genre they're parodying. That would kind of be scary. They just purposely make it not scary, so I can't blame them for not getting anything on the scare factor. That's okay. I I also think the first movie was like I mean just based on the footage that's included in the <laughs> sequel, it seems like the first movie uh, was more horror parody. And this one was their first movie parody. It yeah. was like a parody of their first movie. <laughs> yeah, I, it's like a sequel parody more than it is a horror parody. I think that's fair. Yeah, a, se- a sequel parody. Yeah. Um. Oh, okay. Here's the question I begged Ian to put in is that she's a 10, but she's a tomato. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the average was five. Cause yeah, right. So half of people voted for five and then there was ones and tens. <laughs> there you go and some people can look past it but some people are like no it's a deal breaker there you go and and yeah marshall wouldn't let me put anything else other than just a scale so um (laughs) you you just had to pick a number people just that people knew what it meant and that's great and i appreciate that (laughs) (laughs) um this is the fun part and what aspect of this movie disturbed you the most the film's treatment of female characters the film's weirdly placed and problematic imagery. Tomatoes. George Clooney and his mullet. <laughs> the woman thing, but also someone did the Nazi salute at one point. WTF? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I yeah, I did I did leave an I did leave an other option. Oh, like... okay, I didn't know there was another option. I was like, Ian, what an interesting way to phrase this question. <laughs> Um, so I would probably pin that other one as weirdly placed in problematic imagery. I'd say, yeah, I, I, I would, I would say that I would put it under that category. I oh. think they kind of wanted to select both of the first. Two, yeah, so. it's kind of, it is both the first two, right? Cause they do say the woman thing. So I imagine that's what they're referring to. <laughs> yep. And uh, um, Amelia made me add the, uh, George Clooney's mullet. I think she was very disturbed by it. Oh, dude, he was rocking that mullet though. <laughs> I was, holy crap. <laughs> i'm gonna get a mullet just the next time i see her okay well ian putting that other category i'm gonna give like half of it to the first and half of it to the second i think that's fair so what do you think was the thing that disturbed people the least the least uh i'm actually gonna say i don't think george clooney's mullet disturbed people a lot or no, actually, I'm going to say tomatoes. I okay. feel like one person might have been disturbed by George Clooney, so I'm going to say tomatoes. Right, you're off to a strong start this season, Ian, because the two tied for the lease. Uh, no, hey. no one was disturbed by either. <laughs> Understandably so, because as I said, he was rocking that mullet. That's fair. Very fair. Um, okay. Since we divided the two up, what do you think the winner is between the treatment of female characters and the weirdly placed and problematic imagery? I'm going to have to go for the treatment of female characters just because that was, like, they had more airtime. 
Yeah, yeah. No, you're totally right. Ding, ding, ding. I don't have a bell. Wow, starting off strong yeah. this season. It's like a, it's like a two thirds were female characters, one third were the problematic imagery. Dang. So yeah, I would, I'd say this is a pretty fair graph for us to put up there. Um, yeah. The fact that I have, I have a lot of hope for our audience just because no one voted for George Clooney's mullet. <laughs> uh, right, because it seems rocking it. Yeah, exactly. Would you consider this to be a horror movie? Why or why not? First off, Ian, <laughs> we talked about this. Um, we agree that it's more a parody of a sequel than it is a horror movie. Yeah. Um. So yeah, not particularly a horror movie, but it does have like horror movie origins in a way. Um, it's like three degrees removed from a horror movie. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, anything past that, you can't even look at it in the realm of horror. I'd say. Yep. Uh, our first response is no. I don't know how to describe anything at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> not, so, not even to do with the, with the movie. Yeah. Just like the movie has so badly like <laughs> gotten into my brain that I don't actually, I can't comprehend <laughs> reality anymore. I'm sorry we did this to you. Please come back for the next episode. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> we promise we'll watch a better movie. Uh, it's horrifyingly bad, but no, I would consider it a failed comedy. It didn't really seem like it was trying to scare us. It was just trying to get us to laugh. I'd say that's a fair response. That is. Um, yeah, you should you should be on this podcast with us. There you go. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it's a B horror movie if nothing else. It's like if it's like Tremors. If Tremors was bad and it had a mid cast. Okay, first off, it I had wonder, I wonder who George this was. Clooney. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so you can't say mid cast because it had George Clooney with a mullet. That's right. But the rest was mid. Yes. Um. Uh, yeah, it was a B-horror. It would be like, I'd say that's overselling it a bit, but yeah, that's fair. Uh, nope, it's not even a spoof of a horror movie. I'd say the movie's a straight-up comedy that spoofs 80s action comedies. Only the title spoofs horror. Yeah. Yeah, in general. Yeah. Again, I'll, yep. I'll give it some like a little tiny extra point just because if the first one seemed like it was spoofing horror, and then this is the sequel of the first, so... But no, I'd agree for the most part. Um... Our next question, if you could manipulate the genetic structure of a tomato to become a human being, what would your perfect tomato person be like? That's right. What could they do with a set of milk bottles and a tuning fork? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to see what people theorize on the internet, what that was supposed to be. <laughs> I did forget to let, I, because I, when I was doing the summary, she actually, or Chad said that she brought in a, uh, a lawn chair. Uh, six milk bottles in a oh chair. that's key can't do it without the yeah. lawn chair no you really can't no um <laughs> all right first response two words george clooney i like this person already <laughs> uh the second response a dog humans cannot be perfect but dogs are usually pretty close to it and please i don't need them to be able to do anything with milk bottles and a tuning fork <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that we've read that, I want to know what the first person wants George Clooney to do with milk bottles <laughs> <Yeah>. and <a> <laughs> um, My perfect tomato person would look just like me, but without the capacity to develop emotions. <laughs> I can't tell if this is narcissistic or you're in a bad place. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's either... so maybe it's like a person that they can like send in their stead to things that they don't want to go to. 
They, they, they just yeah. have like a, a doppelganger that they can send out to, uh, you know, to take care of business. Yeah, just deal with a life that you don't deal with. I guess it's fair enough. Yeah. That, oh, wait, here, the rest of it does say, that way I can send my tomato person to work, the store, outside in general, in my stead. Oh, my God. Hey. Oh, my God. The I same word. <laughs> so that I get to stay home with my cat and eat crab rangoon and drink Capri Sun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are they drinking the Capri Sun out of milk bottles? That's a good question. With a tuning fork? I don't know. I don't know why you need a tuning fork. <laughs> <laughs> How Just to drink, drink at the same stuff? frequency. <laughs> as well, if you if you get the right frequency, you can get the straw in easier. Oh, naturally, that makes sense. That is a yeah. hard. Job. I think ninety percent of my Capri Suns when I was a kid definitely had a hole out the back as well. <laughs> Those things were impossible to figure. <laughs> I don't know if the number would go down today either. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. Here we go. My tomato person would be a lot like Marshall's co-host. Preferably, they would find a way to pay my rent with milk bottles. Now that is sexy. I would probably... <laughs> I, I, I'd say that's a fair enough response, you stranger. <laughs> um, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> I would probably agree with you. Yeah, no. My uh, my tomato would also look like my co-host. Yep. Um, Just with less inhibition. And you know? I could pay your rent with milk <laughs> yeah. bottles. And then I'll say what we... uh. What we'd use that tuning fork for? Yeah, no, yeah, I don't think that's uh, <laughs> even with the explicit tag. I don't think we can no. mention that on this podcast. <laughs> uh, our final thing that we leave open at the end of movies is just a question of anything else you want to tell us about the movie. <laughs> our first response: I've never wanted to punt something more than when I saw that furry little soccer ball with feet. <laughs> Seems hard. <laughs> I kind of like your FT. anger be directed at poor FT. <laughs> I know FT was like <laughs> he the, did nothing. He was the only pure thing about this movie, except not dying in the end. That was his one impure thing. Yeah, it's true. It should have died. Uh, I did once. <laughs> what? Okay, hold on. This this one has caught me off guard entirely. I did once have a dream that my dad was standing in the middle of a giant kitchen with all sorts of tomatoes sliced up on cutting boards, <laughs> trying to get me to eat all the tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a kind of weird therapy session. <laughs> this person is abusing the open-ended question. Not, in parentheses, not really related to the movie, but tomato. <laughs> Thank you for your wonderful info. I mean, it, it is an open question, so I, I mean... I suppose so. <laughs> uh, yeah, we wish you the best on your uh, tomato recovery. God. It's the 80s, so as much as it pains me to say the problematic treatment of women, I can just kind of shake my head and roll my eyes at. I'm disappointed, but not necessarily surprised. And that's, I, I see that, but I think that they had other jokes like the big-breasted women at the beach or whatever. That was them clearly knowing better. They, they demonstrated that they do know better, they just ignore that. Yeah. And I think I want to say the industry is at at least a bit of a better point, not a perfect point, and not even it's not even there today, but mm -hmm. where they do know better. I I think that it was just kind of carelessness or, um, just a lack of I don't know empathy from the writers at the time. Uh, but they said unless that was the whole point, and the movie is trying to make a commentary about how women are typically treated in the industry, but this movie doesn't really strike me as the type to do that, so I'm going to assume it was done as a distasteful joke. I'd say it tried to do both, and that's what—that's part of what made the movie so weird, is that it tried to both poke fun at the way women are treated in the industry, and then did it themselves. 
Yes. Seems like a bad move overall. And like in a very evident way where the thing that you were supposed to be laughing at was not like the fact that the sexism was bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you were supposed to be laughing because it was sexist. Yeah. And then our final response. The Nazi salute and the Confederate flag were really distressing. I really feel like the misogyny was lampshading, but the flag did not seem to even be parody at all. Which, yes, I would concur. Yeah, I think that's I think that's like one of the biggest issues with the flag is that there's no there's no parody. There's no like even with the Nazi salute, which obviously shouldn't be in there. It's it is a henchman of the supervillain doing it. So like it, it there's like you could make an excuse there of like a parallel that they're trying to draw one that's completely inappropriate for a comedy like this, but sure. But there's there's nothing there's nothing with the Confederate flag. It's it's just there. That it is. So, that wraps up our time with Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Uh, any last words you want to give, Ian, before we uh, sign off? I uh, think we should have started with a different movie. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I think that's fair. I can't believe, I can't even begin to tell you how much throughout the day I kept checking those votes. And I was like, for the love of God, people, please vote for a different movie. <laughs> there are two movies here that would probably be pretty all right. <laughs> And then, like, 30 minutes before the movie started, I psyched myself up saying, you know what, it's going to be a funny comedy, I'm, I'm sure of it. It's got to be. George Clooney's in it. It can't be bad. Yeah, and I was, like, 30 minutes in, and I was like, you know what, I think I was right. And then I realized just how wrong I was. Yeah. You hate to see it? Um, you would also hate to see this movie, so I don't see this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard editing this episode into something that's entertaining because of how bad <laughs> the movie is yeah yeah i think that's fair my goodness um but it's got us so it can't not be entertaining you know that's of course yeah i mean should we crack just random sexist jokes here now should we like just record a whole bunch of sexist jokes to throw out the podcast yeah I, I think um <laughs> definitely I, I think i think as long as as long as we make sexist jokes uh to be funny yeah i think it's okay yeah. as long as it's a joke women I mean, am i right <laughs> right yeah i can't believe it uh well all right thank you all so much for tuning in we are glad to be back if you haven't noticed by now we are on a bi-weekly schedule um we, so we will be record or watching the movie one week we'll record throughout the next week and edit and then we're going to have it posted when when do you think we'll have this posted again i don't We'll figure out a time uh, to post be, it. Should be Sundays. Like I'm planning on, like kind of keeping the original schedule of we watch movies Fridays and we post episodes Sundays. Gotcha. The only difference being that they're they're going to be a week apart mm -hmm. instead of in the same week. So you know, so one week, like like one weekend, you'll have a horror movie to watch. The next weekend, you have an episode to listen to. So it should work, and it should also mean that we can actually be consistent instead of like just cramming every week indeed yes um so watch out for those um i might be streaming occasionally as well but we're not setting up a schedule for that quite yet it's just something that's going to be happening on the side yep uh, as we figure out i don't know kind of our rhythm with it again we're going to be doing more um quite possibly if our rhythm can withstand that and we're seeing where it takes us now but we're glad to be back and stoked for the rest of everything yeah, so thank you for listening.